Are you ready? Stand by. Welcome to Three Gun Show, your source for technique, strategy, and match recon. Brought to you by Armalite Rifles, LAG Tactical, and British Shotguns. I'm your host, Dave Hartman. This week, I'm joined by Ruben Alexson of Vortex Optics, and we discuss how to set your rifle and yourself up for long-range shooting as it relates to multi-gun events. This podcast is brought to you by LAG Tactical. I've been using LAG gear for three years now, and I just got an upgrade into their new for 2018 MCS mag pouches. MCS stands for Modular Carry System and is a two-piece design that fits most double-stack 9 and 40 mags and most AR mags. That means I can loan gear to someone in need on the range, even if we're shooting different guns. I've been using these pouches for many matches now, and they've been great. I like that you can choose the retention based on what is required by the stage, speed demon or locked in tight. I've been shooting the low cut supernova holster as well, and it has been a dream. They make it in a mid and high cut too if you're into that, but I'm digging the low cut. Super fast draws and plenty of retention when you need it. Check them out, lagtactical.com, and use code 3GS in all caps to save yourself 10% when placing an order. This podcast is also brought to you by Armalite. Through Armalite, I am able to get special pricing for listeners on their line of three-gun rifles. They have a 13.5 and an 18-inch model, both with Armalite's patented tunable comp, Timney triggers, Luth AR stocks, and they're ready to go right out of the box. If you're more of a build-your-own-rifle kind of person, I have a few of their competition handguards left in 12-inch and 15-inch sizes as well. So when you're in the market for a rifle or components to build your own, just email me, dave at 3 and I will hook you up. Anytime you see me on the range, you can check out my rifle. I'm currently rocking the 13.5-inch shorty 3-gun rifle with a Vortex Optics Viper PST 1-6 on it, which I'm really enjoying. The reviews are still coming in from iTunes, and I want to share a couple of those with you right now. The first one is from Justin underscore RMR Bullets, and Justin underscore RMR Bullets says five stars. Great show, very informative, and a great way to learn on so many levels. I always look forward to hearing about matches that I haven't been to. I get the information I need to decide if it's worth the traveling expense. The UML episode rocked, and I hope that takes off and is wildly successful. Well, thanks, Justin. I'm uh, I'm glad you're digging the show and getting a lot out of it and helping you make those buying decisions. And uh, yeah, UML does sound like it's going to be awesome, and I hope it takes off as well. The next one is from Do Work Drift Crew, and Do Work Drift Crew says, thanks for all you do, five stars. Crucial content in a fun and informative setting easily has helped me progress from a new shooter to a better shooter, helped with getting friends into the sport as well. Do Work Crypt. Uh, to work drift crew that is great to hear man or woman and uh totally pumped glad to uh, help you along your your journey in becoming a better shooter and always great to get new people into the sport if you want to leave a review of your own you can do so at threegunshow.com slash itunes and don't forget to hit that subscribe button while you're there take a screen capture send it to your shooting buddies help spread the word about the great content you can find here at the three gun show And uh, for those of you who have left a review and have told a friend, thank you. Keep her going. Help me out. Help me spread the word about the three-gun show. At multi-gun matches, we are constantly asked to push the limits of pistol and shotgun. 
frequently shooting targets well past the practical range of each firearm. When we get to the rifle stage, many shooters become nervous or lack confidence in shooting well within the effective range of the platform. In this podcast, Ruben Allison discusses the steps that you can take to give yourself that confidence and make sure you are prepared to shine at long-range rifle stages, including selecting the right ammunition, how to properly align your scope in various positions, and the importance of trusting your gear. Now enjoy this one with Ruben Allison. Ruben, welcome back to the Three Gun Show. Hey Dave, thanks for having me. How's it going? Dude, it's going awesome, man. It's been uh it's been a while since we've chatted on the uh podcast here, but uh uh we've uh we've been talking offline here about getting ready for the the three gun season. I've already shot my first uh match of the year. Uh what's uh what's the first uh part of your year looking like here? Well, um I was actually able to start a little earlier than I normally do. And uh, by the way, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny how the conversation always turns into, oh, man, we should record that. Yeah. You know, it, it, that's I've had that conversation so many times with you. It's like we're we're talking about topics. So I for uh, for people listening, like I call you for advice on, uh, uh, you know, three gun. Let's be honest. I call you for sure. advice on three gun. Um, I call you for advice on... Uh, like, hey, how would you handle this uh, this situation and stuff like that? And then you and I just generally talk about uh, life in general a lot of times when one of us is traveling someplace as well. And uh, it's usually about the 38th minute in, I'm like, God, I wish, really wish I was recording this. Yeah, it's uh, it seems to be a recurring theme, so maybe we, maybe we just set that up before we talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I was able to to kind of get back on track sorry about that no that's okay i was able to actually shoot uh the post shot show match uh pete rensing's uml match yeah and for somebody from a northern state um with with snow on the ground uh in january february um we don't get a lot of three gun in up north we don't need to talk about that a lot i know the the uh that gets uh brought up quite a bit when talking about uh the minnesota shooters and the wisconsin shooters but I uh, I got to start a little bit early this year, and that was a blast. I mean, we were both at that match, and, man, Pete puts on a heck of a match, especially for a guy that's at SHOT Show all week talking to, you know, industry contacts and sponsors. Yeah, man, let's let's talk about that for a minute. I'm glad you brought that up because we uh, we had been – we'd been planning that one for, like, five or six months out, right? Like, I remember when you first brought it up, like, hey, you know, we – we're in this game for the game. Why why do we just stand around for a week and then go home? Why don't we hang out with uh with a group of uh of people, like-minded people, like-minded individuals, have a good time and remember why we're in this in the first place? And I was like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it was a really cool dynamic uh shooting with a bunch of people that I would say for the most part had been either at shot show most of the week or worked it or at mm-hmm. least had visited it and uh everybody was was very relaxed very laid back still a competitive nature of course because we're all competitors and so you can't and you can't even have dinner at applebee's without people competing but <laughs> um it was fun and i think that yeah we had been talking about it for a while and i was like you know we're all there we're all in vegas we all you know hear such good things about the matches that happen out here and for people that normally don't get out to Pete's regular matches to Expedition, Safari Land, uh, Surefire, um, it was a good way to get 
to to get out um, at Pro Gun Club and throw some lead downrange. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I was pretty excited to do so too because that was the first uh, match that I shot of the new UML format, and it was the Expedition format, and it was the first match that I shot that uh, Pete's run, and the first time I met Pete in person. So there was a lot of first there, and it was pretty. Uh, pretty cool to do it in like a low pressure environment where it was like a club match, you know? So, yep. you know, no, at the end was, of the day, no one's going to win a Cadillac, but like you said, you're still trying to be out there and do your best. Well, it's also fun because we shoot local matches, right? And um, we all have our home clubs per se. And a lot of the times the people that go to the major matches um, and the people that, you know, sometimes that you squad with, they might be other, you know, shooters at the same level as you are. And, uh, you know, so you don't really get to shoot club matches with the same people that you shoot majors with, I would say, unless it's, unless it's a group of people like, you know, the Michigan guys that all travel the matches together or the the Texas guys that, you know, come up and shoot Blue Ridge every year or whatnot. But it was kind of fun to get to shoot a, what I would call kind of a, a major local, but with, with guys that were usually, um, head to head with on a, on a major uh, competitive level yeah that's a good point it it had that relaxed club match atmosphere you know it was only 40 bucks and then uh it also had the the benefit of some of the uh the best shooters in the country being at the uh at the club match too it was, it was a really yeah. cool idea I'm, I'm definitely gonna do it again like this is gonna be a uh uh tradition for me from now on because i did really find a lot of value in uh in shooting a match after shot show even though i was tired from running around all week yeah honestly by the time you get to thursday and friday of shot show and your feet feel like they're gonna fall off um you're kind of hanging on by a thread and i was like oh but i got i got a match tomorrow so it's all good yeah yeah you know what uh bonus it it uh caused me not to um go out and celebrate the end of shot show on friday too so (laughs) we uh we did like a um like a taco dinner we made taco or actually uh i watched nick miller make tacos and uh <laughs> and oh then, so you didn't find a you didn't find a dickie's barbecue to get tacos at? <laughs> oh, oh now now it's coming out Zinger. Uh, Zinger. all right so for for uh for people wondering what we're talking about here uh three gun nation southwest regional uh 2017 um last march last march yep Yep, Scott Green and I went to uh, Dickie's Barbecue, and we had uh, barbecue tacos. And uh, Ruben has given me a hard time ever since saying that um, chain tacos are good tacos. Hey, I, I'm not saying it can't happen. You know, <laughs> it's just that lightning usually doesn't strike twice in the same place. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because like, and you know what's it's weird because uh, the Dickies in Texas. And, and I'll admit it, it sounds ridiculous, but the Dickies in Texas is completely different than it is here in Colorado. Like Colorado, we have, like when they say barbecue, they mean like KC barbecue. It's like sweet, sticky, sure, that kind sure. of stuff. But in Texas, you get like a, a, a different type of barbecue. There's a lot of, um, a lot of smoking, a lot of rubs, things like that. Like, and I prefer Texas barbecue and, uh, our buddy Dylan Easley is absolutely wrong. He's from Kansas city. So he's tainted. He's uh, absolutely wrong in this, and Texas barbecue is way better. But I will say that of of chain barbecue joints, that one in Texas is probably the best I've ever been to. Uh, I did go to one here in Colorado since I've been back, and uh, and man, their brisket is like roast beef. It's pretty mm. bad. 
Yeah, we have a we have a local Dickies in Middleton, and I have not gone to it, but um, there was kind of a joke going back and forth between you and me about yeah <laughs> about like I'm not gonna go to Texas, which is like world renowned for really good you know barbecue and steaks and all that stuff, and go to a place I can just go to down the road from work. Yeah, so. <laughs> and and I give you that, but we and if if I may defend myself because i feel like i got i get it dave it's here. different i get it no it's <laughs> no 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 no, 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 no. It's not like that we we had uh we had uh just a couple hours between the end of the match and the prize table and uh scott and i were starving so we went to the closest place possible which was in navasota and navasota is a very small town very nice town but it doesn't have a whole lot of uh of uh food options so we did the the best we could with what we had that's a good point, Dave. And <laughs> I'm not taking any anything away from Dickie's Barbecue. It's actually pretty good. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> well, we'll find some better barbecue next time we're in Texas. And that's coming up soon, actually. That is coming up soon. Nice segue, by the way. You like that one? I'm excited uh, yeah. for this one, dude. That was, that was good. Um, yeah, so we've got uh, the Vortex Shooter Source 3-Gun Championship coming up. In about three weeks from now, two mm-hmm. weeks from now, something like that, and uh, that's a match that I'm so excited for, man. I I like have been thinking about that match since I left the left the range last year. Yeah, yeah. So this is a this is a really great match. So uh, for uh, people that um, that are hiding in the dark, there is a, a match recon episode on this and I'll put it in the uh, show notes so you can go check it out and, uh, and see what it was like. But this is a, uh, a match where it is all natural terrain. There's actually 20 something bays at this range, which is triple C range in uh, Crescent, Texas. And none of the bays are used whatsoever for the vortex shooter source match. And it is completely open terrain and it is a kick in the pants. Yeah, um, not to not to detract from the focus of what we're talking about today, but yeah, the match has been something that uh, Jeremy Moore, uh, the Texan with a capital T himself, <laughs> and myself and Adam Maxwell and a couple other guys have talked about for about five years, six years now. And there's the like you said, there's a whole episode about the match and and the you know the uh, inception of it and and how it was all you know, kind of come up, but it's a match that really utilizes gear and, you know, you don't have to have the best gear to shoot the match, but I will tell you, your gear will be tested. Um, yeah. your stamina as a shooter will be tested. Um, there's some, there's some really intense stages that require, um, mental preparation at the highest level. And it's also a unique match, uh, because of, some of the props we get to use and because, you know, we get to shoot from vehicles sometimes and man, it is just a blast. Yeah. So, uh, I totally agree. It's a kick in the pants last year. Um, the, uh, 2017 match, there was, you know, several stages where you're walking them and you're like, okay, well, you know, I, I, I have, you know, five, five shotgun targets off to the right, four off to the left. I'm going to go ahead and load load uh eight and then i'll shoot four more and then i'm gonna load eight and so it became for me like uh drawing like a diagram of the forest you know and and including Mm -hmm. like uh all the targets and bushes as well as putting in 
um, my load pattern in the middle here. And, uh, then, you know, you get to the end, you're like, okay, then there's that, you know, a hundred yard, um, full size Ipsic slug shot, or there's a, you know, a hundred yard full size Ipsic pistol shot, you know, things like that. And you're like, okay, that's no big deal. And then it gets to like game day. Right. And you're, you're running through the, uh, um, the, uh, forest there, all the scrub brush, you're, you're dropping <laughs> shotgun shells. If you're me, you're hitting those loads and you're shooting all those, that stuff down and you get to the end and it's just like, <laughs> and now that, that easy hundred yard slug shot is not so easy. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you're looking at a stage, a lot of times, at least the way that Jeremy designs them, I would walk through a stage and I'd be like, okay, this is going to be fast. I won't have to, you know, stop too many times to, you know, and plant my feet to shoot. I can shoot these shotgun targets on the move. And then you look up and there's, like you said, there's a hundred yard BC slug target and it becomes a lot more start and stop movement than you thought it was going to be. The same being for some of the rifle targets, you, you can look at them and be like, yeah, I can kind of breeze past these and shoot them as I move. And you realize that, it's not as easy as it looks and some of the terrain can be kind of uneven and it's, it's a true test. And I think it's, it's really cool because it's, um, it's a match that I think everybody can make it through. You know, it's not something Mm -hmm. that's, it's not so physically challenging that, that it would be, uh, a detractor for people to that, you know, that don't want to have that high level of physical intensity at a match. Um, you know, they're not going to get turned off by it, but at the same time, you can push it really hard, and like you said, you can get to oh, the yeah. end of a stage and be just gassed. Yeah, it, it you know it reminds me of uh, obstacle racing because you can you can you know walk an obstacle race and then uh, do the obstacles and um, or maybe not do the obstacles and just kind of move on on down the line. And you can you know take your time as much as you want, or you can you know sprint between obstacles. You can crush the obstacles as hard, as fast as you can. You can finish, and you're going to be yeah. much much more tired. So there are those different levels. But if you're looking for like unique shooting opportunities jeremy is one of the masters at that you know there uh last year we had several props to do to deal with and you know this year he's got a clean slate and gonna do uh you know um all new props and everything new stages um but we actually shot from like the bodies of helicopters off of connex boxes and things like that it was a very very creative use of the uh the range so one of the things I like to say, uh, Ruben, is if if I go and do like an event, it want, I want it to be like something I can't do at home, right? So yep. one of my biggest pet peeves is going to a concert and someone's lip syncing because I could just put that CD on at home <laughs> and enjoy it. But if you go to a match and there's things that you can normally set up on your own range, then it becomes kind of a bummer. And this is not that type of match. Like there is so much stuff out there that you would not have the opportunity to shoot at your home range that uh it's actually pretty cool and and on the uh on that note it's it's also kind of intimidating trying to figure out how you're going to prepare yourself for that (laughs) you know yeah this match is is a match that when um i actually not to go down too big of a rabbit trail but jeremy moore and i actually met in um i believe it was 2000 and 12 or 2013 we were at a shotgun championship uh colorado shotgun championship oh yeah and um that's when we met in person we had we had emailed before that but um we had we had started talking about that kind of shortly after and jeremy was like you know i want there's a lot of matches and people can go to matches all over the place and if you're going to go to a match 
and spend money. And that's like, that just shows the character of Jeremy. I mean, he's a phenomenal person. He's also a really fun guy to hang out with, but you know, he's like, I want to make this, I want to make this memorable. And I also want to make it something where people are going to come back because they feel like they got their money out of it. And I'm like, man, that's, that's so cool to know that the guy that's running the match that you're spending your money on has, you know, that in the back of his head at all times when he's designing stages. And he, he said before, you know, I thought this would be really cool, but you know, it, it looked like it might've been one of those things where it would basically turn people off because it was too challenging. Even though I might think it's cool, a lot of people wouldn't. And that's cool because he's thinking of the competitor. And one of the other cool parts about this match, Dave, is that it's got a lot of long range rifle and yeah, coming from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, working for a company that makes optics. And so a lot of the times when I'm out at the range, it's not always three gun, you know, I've got several, several rifles that I can shoot PRS matches with, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a PRS competitor. I've shot several long range competitions, but, um, that's not my main focus. Obviously I'm, I'm focused mainly on, you know, on three gun, multi-gun and, um, We've got, you know, other guys here at Vortex that'll that'll go and compete in PRS and shoot the long range matches. But nonetheless, I still have the gear. It's super intriguing. And I love when I go to a three gun match and there's a lot of long range stuff. And Jeremy goes out of his way to make sure that there are plenty of long range challenging targets that will put the shooter to test. Yeah, that's for sure. So last year I, there was uh a stage that basically all the targets were set up in a V. We had like two um, shooting lanes, one out to the left, one out to the right. One went out to 505 yards and one out to, went out to like 605 yards, if my memory serves. And I think it was about like that, yeah. Yeah, and so you're shooting targets from 130 yards out to 600 yards and 130 yards out to 500 yards. And uh, there were two, two shooting positions. Luckily, they were both prone because those are – some uh some challenging positions um yeah it was a true shooting test yes. right i mean it was it wasn't you know your heart rate wasn't crazy high you weren't you know overexerted from a lot of running that stage in particular was a true shooting test yeah and it's all about like knowing your holds and stuff like that so well last year i spent the uh the winter in texas and i shot a lot of dissident arms matches where mm-hmm. in their club matches that you know it's i think it's like 30 40 bucks to go out there and uh shoot in a one day match they're shooting out to like 450 yards on a regular basis uh here in colorado we're kind of limited on uh range so i need help ruben like what should i be doing to prepare for the vortex shooter source match and then let's let's bring this out to like the uh the bigger topic of uh for the audience here of if you do have a match where there's you know a lot of long range coming up how how should you prepare your rifle and yourself for that uh, for that match? Well, that's you know, I appreciate you you know asking that and appreciate you bringing me on to talk about this because in in almost every area of three gun people want to be challenged right yes when we're talking about you know going to major matches like the question always arises like what matches truly challenge every aspect of the shooter and I think where you can lose certain things is if a match is really heavily, um, you know, bay focused, nothing taking against bay matches, but if it's really heavily bay focused, you might lose out on some of, you know, some of the challenges with rifle. And so if we look at what 
people who aren't competitors think about guns. Um, you know, people who are still, you know, they still own guns. They still go to the range a lot. They still shoot. We'll look at a pistol and we'll say, you know, that's primarily intended for, you know, use to whatever, you know, X distance. And it's not absurd. You know, they're not usually saying a hundred yards, but in three gun, we still shoot pistols to a hundred yards and it's, and it's kind of an absurd number. Right. Um, and we look at shotgun slugs and, you know, if you go to hard as hell, you're shooting a shotgun slug out to what's the, what's the Buffalo or the, the bear, is it 250 yards or something? Uh, I want to say that bear was like 280 yards that one year we went. Sure. But nonetheless, we're still pushing the distance, Yeah, you know, pushing the envelope on what's acceptable distance for that gun on a rifle. I think most people would say, you know, an AR 15 and two, two, three or five, five, six with the right loads is a capable platform to engage that 600 yard target. Yes. But in so it's also the one thing that I think a lot of people don't focus on enough because you can really make up a lot of time at a match or you can, you can lose a lot of time at a match that is focused heavily on long distance. Like I was just reading the, uh, the round count that Jeremy sent out. I think it's preliminary. I think he's going to try to stick to it as much as possible, but there's 42 targets over 200 yards. Now it's a lot. If you, if you think about the last match that you went to last major match and there was 42 targets over 200 yards. Now think about the average number of shots that it took you to hit those targets and be honest with yourself about how many makeup shots that you had for each target beyond 200 yards. I think most of us would probably think, um, man, I, I waste a lot of time by missing. So I know that I do. And that's what has kind of really pushed me to focus a lot on the long range aspect of rifle shooting and in within my three gun skill set, try and sharpen that tool as much as possible. Yeah, it's a very good point. The, uh, you know, when you think about how, so, okay, for me, when I, when I get down on the rifle in a, in a position on the clock, I am worried about sending rounds down range and like how long it takes me to get in there. But when you actually sit down and do the math, getting like that proper sight picture and, um, and sign alignment, which there is sign alignment with a scope and, uh, and being steady is, worth the time it takes to do it rather than miss and miss and miss. Yeah. And a lot of that is when people get down into position, whether it be a VTAC barricade, whether it be, um, a tank, a tank trap, it doesn't really matter what position you're getting into. It could be prone. It can be on incline, decline. doesn't matter. Getting into position is one of the most important things because your cheek rest is vital. Um, your, your position behind the scope, both horizontally, vertically, you know, on, on all axes, is very important because it's going to determine your eye relief. It's going to determine, determine, um, parallax inducing parallax, which is a, you know, a shifting of the image or, or a shifting of the point of impact based on your position behind the scope. Um, there's a lot of things that are important. So a good example of that would be if you watch some of the guys that like one guy that I really look up to as, as a rifle shooter, um, is Greg Jordan. Greg Jordan yeah. is one of those guys that when I watch him shoot long range rifle, it always blows me away because he gets into position very efficiently. He gets behind the gun and you're like, break the shot. Come on, break, break the first shot. Let's go. And, but what he's doing is he's taking time to get the proper side alignment with, you know, behind the scope. And, 
um, and making sure that each shot is a hit. And you might watch somebody like that, and they don't look like they're flying because they're not ripping shot after shot after shot. And it might take them an extra second to get into position. But on a stage that um, might take me 60 seconds to shoot an all-rifle stage, uh, I get done, and I'm like, wow, I did pretty good. I only had three or four makeup shots. And then I watch Greg Jordan shoot it, and he shoots it in 34 seconds and goes one for one. I think he can be a really, really good example for anybody who's looking to be a, a good long-range rifle shooter. And there's a lot of there's a lot of guys like that, not just Greg, but um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of phenomenal rifle shooters in three gun. I think we can all learn more from them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one thing that I that I've noticed in in uh, in a lot of the major matches that are not exclusively bay matches, that the the rifleman uh, so to speak, is at the uh, the top of the game, right? Um, Lance Dingler said it on the uh, the podcast before, like the match is won, won and lost on the rifle. And he said it in, in context of uh, the Three Gun Nation shootoffs. And, uh, you know, if you stop and think about that, that axiom, the match is won and lost on the rifle, it spreads to every match. And it's not just a shootoff when you're shooting the plate rack. Like it's it's a very important part of the game, you know, the, uh, uh, and when, when you're talking long range, it becomes even more important. Yeah. And you know, it's not, I mean, to tell you the truth, Dave, it's not completely based on your shooting skill. It's not completely based on how much practice you get in. A lot of it is based on knowing your rifle, its capabilities, pairing it with the best ammunition that, that shoots out of that gun because, it's it's awesome to see shooters promoting their sponsors and promoting the company that, you know, let's just take ammo for an example. Um, someone can say, I shoot this ammo. It's the best ammo out there. It's the best long-range rifle load. And a lot of times I've had it before where I've gone and thought, oh, well, if that person's endorsing it, I'm going to try it out. And I shoot it out of my rifle, and it doesn't shoot very good or as good as something else does. And so... You have to kind of be willing to, to be able to pair. You know, rifles are are a picky thing. You're you're, um, you know, they're a machined piece of metal that is, you know, precision, either cut or buttoned rifling, and and it doesn't always respond the same to. You know, not every rifle is going to like the same ammo, and so a lot of times, mm-hmm. getting your rifle ready for the year, um, or you know, for this for the shooting season can mean a considerable amount of work, and one thing that I always, you know, I always kind of stress with people is there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that your long range rifle game, you know, and let's, let's just talk shots beyond 200 yards. Right. Right. Um, there's a lot that goes into that, that isn't practice, that isn't pulling the trigger. You know, a lot of it is, you know, side alignment, you know, proper trigger pull, having, having the right grip on, you know, a lot of times we just use that for talking about pistols, but a lot of times you can carry that over to the rifle, you know, dry firing with rifle is important. Um, but a lot of that prep work can go into knowing your rifle, knowing the data, uh, of the load that you're shooting, knowing what load shoots best, and then learning how to properly apply that into, into our world, into the three gun world and how it helps us shave time off the clock. So I guess kind of with your permission, I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about what it looks like to get your rifle ready for a season 
in which you know you're going to have some matches with long range shooting. Absolutely. Let me throw one little anecdote out there uh, real quick. You talked about uh, ammo. Um, when I first started, like I had just like an, an M4 style rifle, you know, with the, uh, you know, hammer forge, barrel, chrome line, stuff like that. And uh, I just shot whatever 55 grain I could get my hands on at whatever time. Um, and I've I noticed over time that not all 55 grain is, is the same. So like the point of impact would shift if I was shooting American Eagle versus PMC, whatever was on sale that week, you know, that I could buy. Um, and then I noticed when I actually built my first like dedicated three gun rifle based on all the knowledge that uh, my wonderful guests have given me on the, on the podcast here, I actually had like a stainless precision barrel and, you know, legit um, uh, trigger and stuff like that. The, and a, and a good optic, the, um, groups tightened on that 55 grain, you know, mil spec ammo. So the, the platform means a lot. And then when I, um, switched to like precision ammo, the groups tightened even more to where they're like touching. So the platform means a lot. The ammo means a lot. It's like an entire system all together. So yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, that system here. I'm going to be, um, swapping to a, a new rifle coming up. So I want to talk about uh, setting up the scope too. So let's not forget to, to uh, put that one in there. Yeah, no, absolutely, Dave. And I think, um, I think when, when we, when we go and look at, like you said, I mean, not all 55 grain FMJ shoots the same, Yeah. not all 69 grain, you know, Sierra match King ammo shoots the same, not all 75 grain Hornady shoots the same. And so sometimes it can require a little bit of homework on the back end, but you're really, really going to see it when you get out on the range and start shooting. And so for me, I think like a lot of people, and and we've talked about this before, but I can't, I can't afford to shoot 75 grain ammo, even though it shoots the most accurately out of my, my rifle with a proof barrel that I'm running right now. Um, I can't afford to shoot 75 grain for paper at 10 feet, right? right like it's right. just not realistic. And so a lot of us then are kind of forced to select a lighter load that might be lower recoiling, but not perform good at long distance or as good. And then we also select a long range load that, you know, that does perform better in the wind and that does have, um, you know, a higher ballistic coefficient referring to, referring to the bullets, um, efficiency of flight. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, what I do is I'll go and, and, and pick a bunch of ammo up and look at it and I'll, I'll take it to the range and, you know, do my, do my normal zero procedure. I'll shoot it at 50 yards. And a lot of times what you'll see is you'll see at 50 yards, it might be kind of hard to tell a major difference, but if we can stretch it out to a hundred yards and I'll be honest with you, a lot of my, you know, the collection of ballistic data doesn't necessarily um, involve my one to six razor or one to six PST. A lot of the times I'll swap it out and I'll put a long range, uh, higher magnification scope on so that I can be more precise and make a better decision. So um, for anybody out there that is um, kind of wondering, you know, what's the benefit of that? Well, if I'm able to aim my rifle more precisely at 100 yards or 200 yards, I'm able to get better data out of that because I know that my shots were more well placed. Um, a reticle that covers up a tenth of an inch at 100 yards versus a reticle that covers up 
an inch at a hundred yards, I'm able to be a lot more precise with that. Yeah. And so I'll go in and I'll take, you know, a lighter load, like a 55 or a 60 grain load. Um, right now I've got uh, a bunch of Hornady 62 grain. Uh, it's their black series of ammo. It's what my barrel likes the best right now for, um, for a lighter load and it shoots really soft too. So, um, that's kind of what I selected based off of, um, what I had access to. And then I've got a longer range load, which is generally going to be a heavier bullet, you know, anything from 68 or 69 grains all the way up to 77 grains. And, um, I'll kind of see how those two play together, right? I'll zero it with one ammo and then I'll shoot and, uh, I'll shoot the, the heavier ammo and I'll see the relationship between the two. You know, if the point of impact is very close at a hundred yards, then, then that's actually really nice. Um, because then all I have to do is, um, make a, a very, very little changes in my, you know, ballistic software program, um, which we can talk about a little bit later too. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll test accuracy on all of them and then select the load that I feel is, you know, adequate and cost effective and, and all that other good stuff. And I'll say this, like if you're going to be primarily shooting, um, you know, a lighter load and your matches that you're shooting, you know, if you're shooting mostly local matches versus mostly major matches, um, you, you may or may not select a load that performs to one lo one set of standards or a second set of standards. So kind of what I'm getting into there is the load that I'm shooting for my light load, which is 62 grain, it performs phenomenally out to 300 yards, even in the wind. And so that gives me a little bit of flexibility. So I can realistically shoot a match without having to change ammo if there's nothing beyond 300 yards. Yeah. Um, and then the same kind of goes for, uh, I guess, what I'm kind of getting at is that it's all going to be tailored to you as a shooter, and it's going to be tailored to the to the rifle that you're shooting. Um, but once you've found the loads that shoot well for you and that perform as expected, you know, I think a lot of times uh, when, when you're at a match talking to people and um, we're standing at a stage watching, you know, people get ready and... Um, they're walking the stage and they're writing down distances. They got their range finder out. They're writing them down. And then they go into, you know, a ballistic app like Straylock or Shooter uh, or Applied Ballistics. doesn't really matter what app you're using. Most of them generally will tend to use the same algorithms to determine ballistic drop uh, or bullet drop. But when they're standing there, um, you know, and they're saying, okay, here's my drop distance for or my drop value for this distance, you know, the next distance. And, um, it's funny because sometimes you'll talk to people and you'll be like, man, that that's crazy velocity. Like what, uh, I'm curious about the, that level of velocity that you're getting, or maybe even just the, the smaller level of, of bullet drop that they're talking about. And they're like, well, that's what the box said for velocity. Oh, yeah. And, uh, that sometimes breaks my heart because, those numbers are generally going to be calculated unless it's a designed load for an AR-15, which is probably going to then be based off of a 16-inch barrel. It's probably tested, if it's a 223, it's probably tested on a 24-inch barrel. Yes. 5.56 five, can be a little different, but 223 loads are generally going to be tested on a 24-inch barrel, which you can get 
significant increased accurate or increased velocity per inch, 40 to 60 feet per second per inch. So you could be looking at the box and it might say um, 3,240 feet per second. And then you go and um, you, you try it out and you chronograph it and you might be 200 feet per second slower. I mean, that is completely realistic. That's, that's not even, that wouldn't even surprise me if you were 200 feet per second off of what the box says. But here's kind of some funny data. Um, I was shooting some ammo a couple of years ago when I was shooting a 14 and a half inch barrel and went to Ironman. And uh, this was actually one of the things that really got me into learning more about Ironman was one of the things that got me into learning a lot more about long range shooting. But um, the box of ammo that I was shooting was a 77 grain Sierra Match King. And the box said it was, I think, 2,880 feet per second. And my actual velocity out of a 14.5 was 2,550. So, yeah. So, for anybody listening that doesn't quite understand what that means, that means that my bullet is dropping a lot more than the box says it is. Yeah. And so it becomes really important to to chronograph, you know, your the load that you're shooting, and to have that built into a ballistic calculator so that you know exactly what your bullet is doing at long distance. And I'll tell you that that uh, so I shoot that 13 and a half inch uh, Armalite, and mm-hmm. um, I use. 77 grain Nexus ammunition. Um, I'm very fortunate that, you know, they're from the same parent company because the the 77 grain load was developed for the 18 inch and the 13 and a half inch Armalite rifles. Yeah, um, and that's fantastic ammo and fantastic rifles. Yeah, for sure. And if you look at, so I'm looking at the velocity on the website here. It's 2620 is what they say it is, 2620 feet per second. And uh, Jer- uh, Jeremy Gresham told me at one time, the length that they test out of and i can't remember i want to say it was 22 inch but it could be a 24 inch as well but um i did chronograph this uh a week and a half ago out of my 13 and a half um with the chrono you know four to five feet away 24 12 is what i got so that's a 208 feet per second difference and when you're talking 500 yards completely off the target it's huge yeah you're hitting five feet in front of the target on the ground exactly so that that is the importance of uh either buying a chrono or finding a a good buddy with a chrono that you can uh you can do and pro tip you know a lot of a lot of ranges will actually have like an inventory of uh gunsmithing tools and you can check out a chrono so um, it's very, very important that you do that with your long range, um, ammo. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and to that point, Dave, I mean, three gunners are incredibly generous people. I've actually, um, I actually, somebody helped me by, by letting me borrow their chrono to start. Um, and I actually went and, you know, uh, a year later I went and bought one and I've borrowed it out to multiple people, but you're, you're probably not going to use it a ton. So if it's something you can borrow from a local range or a local shooter, and I don't want anybody to think you have to have a chronograph to shoot long range, but it really helps. Yeah. And, and if you can gather good data, um, it, it's vitally important to being able to hit consistently at four or five, 600 yards. Yeah. And then to your point, uh, you know, paying it forward, if you do end up getting a chrono, let all your buddies know so they can uh, get good data as well. Yep. So when, when I'm gathering data, um, the having having uh you know almost a full afternoon at the range is something that you're going to want to dedicate to go out and figure out exactly the velocity that you're shooting 
Um, the, the bullet that you're shooting should be advertised on the box. If, if, if it's a 55 grain FMJ, just find out who the manufacturer of the bullet is. Um, most manufacturers are easily, easily willing to, to tell you. Um, and if, you know, if they're not take something very comparable and do it, but almost every long range load out there is going to be loaded with a bullet that has a good reputation, right? Like, um, you know, Hornady's loading their their BTHPs, the ballistic tip or uh, the boat tail hollow point, and they're loading their Amaxes, and other other brands are either loading Hornady bullets or Sierra bullets, or they might be loading um, a you know a bullet from Berger. Um, and forgive me for there's there's tons of other good bullets out there, but generally you'll be able to easily find the ballistic uh, information for that bullet that you're shooting. Um, and enter that into a ballistic calculator. Now, I use a ballistic calculator called Shooter. Um, it's called Shooter Ballistics, and that that's a cool app because uh, you know it's right on it's right on my Android phone. Um, it allows me to have a bunch of different profiles for different guns. Straylock uh, or iStraylock Pro. Uh, you can use Applied Ballistics. These are all places for you to input that information and then ultimately access it um, when you need it. So, so I've got a bunch of my long range guns in there. I've got a bunch of work guns in there, but I I probably have about 25 guns in shooter right now. And if I, you know, if I click on, um, my, you know, 18 inch, uh, in two, two, three wild chambered AR 15, I'm able to go in and look at the different loads that I have. So I have, um, you know, freedom munitions, 55 grain. I have Hornady 62 grain. I have, um, probably eight or nine different loads in there, but I've selected the ones that are shooting the best out of my rifle and I go in and the one thing that you're going to want to keep, you know, keep in mind is if you're shooting your, your 55 or 60 or 62 grain load, your light load, a lot of people will just say, you know, your hoser load, Yeah. you're, you're going to probably have two different point of impacts. Yes. And a lot of times one might be higher than the other, the other might be lower than the other. It, it depends, but that is something that when you're entering it in to your shooter or to iStraylock Pro or whatever it might be, you can actually enter in your your height at zero. So you can enter it in so that you're shooting whatever, you know, whatever distance is, whatever amount high at a certain distance. Mm-hmm. And so your zero distance might be 100 yards. You could then say that, if your 75 grain ammo shot an inch higher at 100 yards than your 55 grain ammo did, you can actually enter that into your your ballistic calculator, and then use that data as you're shooting a long range stage because you might have a stage where you have both close and far. And if it's you know if there's 20 paper targets under 100 yards, and then you get to a platform and you have to engage five or six long range targets from 400 to 600 we're probably going to make a mag change in between there and then we're probably going to um you know start now with a different type of ammo um you know the ammo that would be optimized for those longer range targets right and you're not going to have time on the clock to go and readjust your zero on your rifle yeah right i mean that's a thing i think a lot of times people don't quite realize that yeah, you can have a good ammo that performs really well at long range, and you can have an ammo that performs adequately at close range or adequately enough for shooting paper and steel under 100. Um, but the, if they don't have the same point of impact, 
your data that you entered into your phone or into your ballistic calculator is going to be completely off. Yeah. And I've only ever seen one guy dial on the clock, and that was Kim Lebanon. Uh, and he's just used to shooting like, you know, IPSC type rifle uh, competitions because he's from uh, Finland. But the, uh, um, the point of impact change, you know, is one of those things that you got to figure out in your stage plan where where you're going to change your ammo if you're going to change your ammo and that depends on a lot of things like you know distance is obviously the the chief but how big that target is as well is uh is something that you can figure out like for example in in the uh texas three gun championship that i just shot a couple days ago they had uh targets out to like 200 so you're like okay well in in one stage for example and you're like okay well this isn't this may not be worth a um a 77 grain load because that's going to cost me dollar 25, $2.50, you know, and as, as you go up, it's like, okay, well this, this stage could get expensive. Maybe I'll use my 55 grain and the targets are uh steel challenge targets. So they're large, right? Yep. So if you have something like that to deal with, you have to factor all that stuff in there. Like, okay, well maybe my, my point of impact shift doesn't matter here, but if they throw like an eight inch target out there, now your point of impact shift really matters. Yeah. So a, a base stage with a, you know, a 300 yard full size Ipsic steel at the end for a rifle target, um, and 20 paper targets under, you know, whatever, you know, at close range mm-hmm. and you go, you know, it might not be, it might not be necessary to switch because if your ammo is, is good enough for that target that you're engaging, then there's really no need to change. And so I would always encourage people to find out even what, what does your hoser load or your, your close range load do out at longer distances, because it might be good enough if, if the wind conditions are right, uh, on a stage that has targets out to 300, 350 yards, 400 yards even. And people will always, you know, there's, that's not the, that's the, that's, the exception is not the rule, but like if you can and don't have to change ammunition and stuff, it can be, uh, it can be easily done. And somebody will say like, Oh, I, I can hit 600 yards with 55 grain ammo all day. And that's fine. But that's not the point of the conversation. All right. Well, and, and, uh, to that point, you know, I was in a practice session a couple of weeks ago before I left for, um, Texas with a friend of mine and we're shooting 600 yard, uh, steel target, steel targets just for, uh, for practice sake. And, uh, I'm sitting there with a, you know, half full mag of 55 grain, whatever I had at the time. And it left in my box of Nexus was seven rounds. So I stuffed the seven rounds on top of that, threw it in there. And I'm trying to judge the wind because we had a lot of wind to deal with, um, at various uh, speeds down this, this thing, because we had flags at each a hundred yards or flags at hundred yards, um, all the way down to 600. And so you're watching like the, the different wind happening here and you're, so you're trying to judge the wind and your hold and everything. And when I fired that last round at 77 and then fired around a 55, I saw for the first time a very visual representation of how the same wind reacts to two different bullets. And for me, uh, in the wind that I was shooting at the time, it was a three foot difference, which is mm-hmm. huge when you're uh, when you when you're trying to hit something on the clock. And and I think that that's fine, right? Like we have a thing that we say around here, and it's probably 
industry wide. It's probably not just us, but we always we always say trust the bullet, right? So yeah, it doesn't necessarily matter because I know I know shooters that swear on shooting a fifty grain, uh, a fifty grain V Max just cranking out at super high velocity does um, just fine in the wind, and that's fine. But that that the reality is that most shooters don't do that because that's going to be probably a hand loaded hand loaded you know round, and a lot of people don't have the time to do that. So. I will I will always say that if you have a load that you're shooting for long range and it isn't a 77 or a 68 grain bullet that's fine but that's not that's the exception that's not the rule most people are going to have uh, a two different loads that they're shooting and they're going to have it um one that's catered more towards long range and one that's close range like uh I've got several friends that will load a 45 or 50 grain bullet and it's just smoking you know super high velocity and they, you know, they swear up and down on it. Now, that same bullet doesn't carry as much energy at longer distances. And so that's where you can get into having, you know, uh, trouble seeing impacts at long range. So that's the other thing is we're shooting targets that are oftentimes reactive. And if it's a, you know, if it's an MGM um, sw- swinger target that's um, activated and you're, you know, there's a flag that has to be, uh, I guess a flag that has to be visually seen by the, the RO to call the hit. Um, and if your bullet doesn't have enough energy to move that enough, especially at long range or, um, we were shooting hard as hell uh, a couple of years ago and there was a target at longer distance and it was a flasher target and the wind was blowing so hard down range that a lot of people's lighter loads weren't hitting that target hard enough to actually move it enough so that you could see the flag. Yep. So that's the other thing. It's not just about selecting the right projectiles and the right ammo um that perform well in wind or that are more consistent with their drop values it's about having a a load that has the um, the right amount of energy to activate a target so um that that also plays into it yeah absolutely and and i have been on the wrong side of that uh that argument before where like i i know i could see through my scope that i hit that target but it didn't move the uh, the flasher because when you're dealing with targets at you know 400 yards and beyond they want to give you they want to give you the best opportunity to hit it so sometimes you're looking at like a 16 inch plate hanging off of a, a flasher right and yep. 16 inch steel <laughs> doesn't move very much under 55 grains at 500 yards right so they're selecting a large target so that you have a higher likelihood of hitting it yes but also you're hitting it with a very, very small projectile that at that distance um, doesn't have as much energy as it needs to to really move it. And so then you then you go to relying on the RO seeing splash, yep. um, you know, f- uh, frag coming off the target, hitting the ground below it and creating a little dust. Um, a lot of times that can be misinterpreted for, oh, they're just hitting low and all of a sudden they're hitting the center of the target time after time after time. And they're just seeing the dust on the ground below the target from the f- the frag coming off of you know, the impact. Um, Magneto Speed has these new target hit indicators that are actually starting. Well, they they're they're starting to hit the market now, but there there are target hit indicators that you know that will have a strobe light or they'll have a, a light that's moved off to the side, and that's a lot of times what you're what we're seeing a lot of these matches going to um, for their long range stuff because if a if a competitor is hitting the target, you know there's always the argument of like, did you hit it or did you hit it good enough to activate the flag? If you don't, if I don't see the flag activate or the, you know, 
then I'm not going to call a hit. And it's like, well, I'm being asked as a competitor, hit the target. I'm not being asked to activate the flag. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of those things where I have taken it upon myself to shoot um, a load that will always activate the target and no matter what um, so that I'm getting credit on the clock for what I'm doing. And I got to say, I'm loving those strobes because there, there's no argument anymore. You know, if, if, uh, if I see that red flash, I'm moving on. If the RO sees the red flash, he's shouting hit, you know, and, and, uh, in the early days of us trying these things out, we're going to still have, you know, ROs on glass. So, uh, um, in case there is some sort of, uh, you know, mechanical or electronic failure in one of those things, um, until we get used to them. But I think this is the future and I'm, I'm pretty pumped that it's, uh, that it's happening in a lot of, a lot of big matches. Texas three gun had them. I know Vortex shooter source is going to have them. Yep. It's, uh, it's pretty I exciting. That, I think that you'll see them become more and more popular at, you know, in three gun matches. They're already really popular within PRS. Yeah. Um, and actually they were kind of initially, developed for that ELR, the extreme long range shooting, um, where you're not going to see the impact with optics or, uh, you know, so you can see a red strobe flashing at a mile and a half, but it's hard to see that impact on a spotting scope or on a, you know, a pair of binoculars. And so that's where a lot of that came from, but it actually turns out that it really benefits competitors where time is of the essence. And mm-hmm. as we know, that's what the sport that we, we play in is. Yeah. Uh, quick side note: The first time I saw one of those was at Generation Three Gun, and it was on the uh, the stage that uh, the Logan Bills at Tooth and Nail Armory built, and they always have long range targets. And I want to say that their uh, was like three hundred seventy three yard target had it, and it was in this valley, and it was uh, raining all weekend, and it was the last day, and there was no rain, but there was this like fog hanging there. And when someone would hit that target, the strobe would flash, and the entire valley would light up because of all the water in the air. It was just refracting oh, off the yeah. whole thing. And it was creepy as hell. It was <laughs> it looked like War of the Worlds, you know the uh, the old Tom or not the old the uh, the Tom Cruise movie with like the red robots and stuff. Yep, I, I thought yep. that was hilarious. It looked really cool. But yeah, the, I'm a big fan of those things. Well, so we, oh, all right. So we I think we covered uh, um, ammunition pretty well. We're gonna get that in uh, in a ballistics program to help us out with uh, drop and things like that. Uh, anything we want to cover more on ammunition before we move on to uh, physical no. rifle setup? No, I think we've we've kind of hammered that one. Um, I guess the to to recap, you know, pick what pick what works best for you, um, and and develop a plan ultimately for for what you're going to be shooting, and that's the biggest thing is knowing, just knowing. You know, trust the bullet. Know where know where the bullet is going to be, and then you can select the right optics, the right mount, the right everything else to make it, um, to make it actually a, an effective combination with the other stuff that you use. I got you. Um, and that and part of that is, I mean, this is going into the prep side of things, but definitely know, you know, there there's sometimes if you're using a BDC reticle there can be different distances that you zero at work the numbers on a ballistic calculator. Once you get your velocity for, for if you're the type of shooter that only shoots one ammo, get your velocity or two different types of ammo or three, it doesn't really matter. Figure out what your velocity is for all of them. Get that put into a ballistic calculator with the proper ballistic coefficient and then play with zero distances. So if you're shooting a ballistic, 
a BDC reticle, like a ballistic drop compensation reticle that's built for a 223556, you know, I'll say this. Everybody says, oh, I'm shooting a BDC, so I don't have to know that. Well, that BDC reticle was based off of a specific load. It, it was based off of mm-hmm. a certain type of ammo in a certain gun at a certain altitude on a certain day with a certain batch of powder and a certain lot of bullets. And correct and so, me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them are built around like a military specification load like M855, which is like a 62 grain uh, steel core at sea level. Am I wrong on that? No, I think you're you're absolutely right. And I don't know the history of BDC reticles. Um, so please, please forgive me if I'm misspeaking, but I think a lot of kind of goes back to the ACOG the ACOG having a very easy to use reticle, um, plug and play, drop it in, you know, drop an ACOG on a 14.5 or 16 inch 5.56, and they're shooting green tip penetrator um, at sea level. That's, I think, where a lot of BDC, at least in in the AR-15 world of AR optics, was probably kind of developed. And again, I could be totally wrong on sure. that, but that's that's my first experiences with it. Um, that's my understanding back. as well. So we'll call that fact. We'll write that down. That's fact. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. Um, Don't Google that. <laughs> so but, along but, the, along those lines, um, I I have found them to be inaccurate with um, shooting precision loads, uh, BDC reticles. So I made a decision when I. Um, when I switched to uh, shooting TAC ops to go with an MRAD reticle because it's like holding a metric ruler out in the distance. Yeah. And it, the, the truth of it is Dave is that it's going to be different for everyone. Um, Right. There, there, there might be a way that's more right than the other, but I don't think one is wrong and one is right because really you're going to have the choice of a few different kinds of reticles. You're going to have a BDC reticle, you're going to have a mill scale reticle or you're going to have an MOA scale reticle. Now mm-hmm. those MOA and mill are just two different systems of angular measurement that are used in multiple different worlds. But in the optics world, we know them as MOA and MRAD or mill. And yes, they are a scale. Um, the BDC reticle is actually, I think a lot of people discredit BDC reticles because they were made for a certain load on a certain day. But if you so happen to be using something that performs very similarly to that, they actually can work really well. Yeah. Um, and it requires a lot less work on the shooter's side of things as long as you're using the equipment that it was intended to be used with. Um, and as long as you know what your actual velocity is, you can match it up. And, for example, if the BDC was off by, um, off by a small amount but it still gets you the hit on an 18-inch circle at 500 yards – then a lot of people will elect to shoot something like that with a BDC reticle simply because it takes less time on the on the back end to prepare for long range shooting. Now, I like yourself have chosen to use a mill scale reticle or an MRAD reticle. Um, you're shooting it in the one to six PST. Uh, yep. I'm shooting it in the one to six Razor E this year. Um, I also have a JM one BDC that I have used. Um, a, a lot depending upon the match, especially if I'm going to a match that has, you know, specific berms for targets where, where due to range rules or safety rules, 
they have to put targets in front of a berm. And if those berms are at even distances, I'll actually cater what I shoot for that match based off of the target, you know, presentations. But nonetheless, you're using, I'm using a mill scale reticle that we can then go into. Um, we're not, we're not going to be generally speaking, we're not going to be as restricted on the distance that we have to zero at with a mill scale reticle or an MOA scale reticle as someone who shooting is shooting a BDC reticle would be mm -hmm. because we can go and do what bet works best for our rifle and our reticle or our optic. Whereas people shooting BDC reticle are generally going to be stuck zeroing at a certain distance that that reticle was intended to be zeroed at. Right. For me personally, I think a lot of times people say, well, it's an AR, so I'm just going to zero at 50 and I'll be zeroed at 200 and then I'm, you know, hold top of target at 300. I think a lot of times that's a good way to get yourself kind of stuck in. I'm just going to do this right now because there's a very low percentage of long range targets and I'm not going to worry about those. I'm just going to be, I know, I know where I am on close range and I'm not going to worry about it. Whereas if you actually go into a ballistic calculator, most of them you can import uh, a reticle, a specific reticle from a specific manufacturer. We work with all these companies that make the apps to provide scale versions of the reticle so that when you're looking at um, your ballistic data, you can usually swipe over and see a picture of the, the actual reticle that you're using. And that's one of my favorite parts about working with a ballistic calculator is I'm a very visual person. So um, <laughs> if I can if I can see what I'm supposed to see, then it makes it easier for me to do that on the clock. Yep, and a lot of them you can actually select what you know what target you're shooting at, and it'll show you what <laughs> yeah. it looks like at different magnifications. And um, coming from the the mental preparation side of things, it can be really nice because you can literally just look at it and you see what the target is supposed to look like and where you're supposed to hold based off of wind and all that stuff. And so, I think that's that's one of those things that is probably really underutilized by shooters. <coughs> and I'll say, it's. It's, but it's only as good as the data you put into the app. So that's kind of where we go back to the preparation side of things. Yeah. Is it's, it's vitally important that you have that. Um, even if you're off by 50, 60 feet per second, it can mean misses at long range. Yeah. I, I tell you, one of the things that I had wrong last year that really uh, screwed with me was scope height. Oh, like height over bore? Height over bore, yeah. So I uh, I'm um, totally made a, a, a dumb move, and I put the... Uh, height over the flat top instead of the height over the bore into my ballistics calculator and I had uh, several um, problems where I would type it into um, you know street lock and it would tell me where I'm supposed to hold and then that would be way off from where I was actually seeing on paper um, at you know past 300 yards and sure. I didn't <laughs> I didn't find that out until like months later and I was talking to uh, a friend of mine that's a um, accomplished uh, professional long range shooter and by by professional i mean like for the government and he um he yes. he's like oh yeah there's your problem <laughs> and yeah, i was like well, why yep. didn't you mention that he's like well i didn't think you'd be dumb enough to do that <laughs> yep and so so to anybody listening your hide over bore refers to you have two bores you have the bore of the scope which yep. is going to be the center of the tube diameter generally um, so if you have a 30 millimeter tube, it's going to be right in the middle of that. Um, and then 
to the center of the barrel. So a lot of times you can take a tape measure and just kind of center it on that that horizontal gap in the scope ring. So you can you can kind of lock the tape measure into that gap as long as that gap is in the middle of the scope tube. And then you can hold it. Uh, if you lock your carrier back, you can kind of hold that tape measure over uh, the center of your bolt. So you, you would ultimately want it to be where your firing pin is. And you take that distance, and that's also that height over bore is a distance that you'll enter into a ballistic calculator because your scope then, I mean, when it's mounted, you know, generally two and a half inches to two and three quarters inches, depending upon the height of the mount you're using, um, you're dealing with things that are on two different planes. And so we need, the, the ballistic calculator will need to take that into account when it's generating your data for drops. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ruben. So while we're on the uh, topic of of scopes and height over bore and stuff like that, let's let's talk about setting up a scope. So if you've got a you know new scope, a new scope mount, or a new rifle, and you're you're putting those three things together, how do you do that? Because you were talking earlier about the um, about centering your eyeball in that that uh, scope box, looking for shadow around around the uh, ring. How do you make sure that in all the positions that we shoot in three gun that you are seeing the the crisp sight picture that you need to see? Well, it kind of goes back to looking at um, the gear that you're using and determining that it is the, indeed the right gear for, for the match you're shooting. Um, a lot of times you see people, they'll post pictures of, this is my three-gun rifle for the year, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I think if we're being honest with each other, we oftentimes see people post a new rifle every year. And so yeah. whether that be new gear they get from the same sponsor or whether that be you know, just buying something different to try out or whether it be partnering up with a company that they hadn't partnered with before and using gear that they hadn't used before, regardless, a lot of the times you will see people that say, this is my three-gun rifle for the year. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, there probably isn't a specific one rifle that is perfect for every match that we go to. So I will almost always look at the matches that I'm going to and what distances we're shooting to, the type of targets. Is it a bay match? Is it a terrain match? Um, And then cater the gear towards that. So if I'm shooting uh, my local match, which Adam Maxwell, Travis Vogel, and myself – uh, along with the help of some fantastic other people. We set it up every month. We get uh, a, a super good turnout, especially for being how close we are to Madison. Um, we we don't shoot past 100 yards at our match right now, just due to the range, due, mm-hmm. to, the constrict, you know, due to the the restrictions on distance and where we can shoot at the range, um, where we can uh, run with guns, per se. Um, so my, my setup for that match might be completely different. Might have a a stock that doesn't have an adjustable cheek piece. It might just be a, a basic carbine that's, you know, super light um, because I'm not super concerned about getting into a prone position and shooting a 500-yard target at that match. Whereas if I'm going to Blue Ridge or Ironman or Shooter Source or Texas 3-Gun Championship, the gear that I'm going to select for those matches will be definitely gear that is is acceptable for shooting at long range from different positions. So positional shooting at various distances. And so when you're looking at what height mount to use, oftentimes I think we're just going to set the standard here and we're going to say we're probably going to select a cantilever mount 
It's a mount that was designed for use on the air platform to give you proper eye relief and proper, um, you know, cheek height based off of the inline buffer system of an AR. Mm-hmm. You'll, a lot of times you'll see kind of this movement towards a, a, a higher mount right now for guys that are shooting bay matches. Now that's so that you can, you know, that would be at like a 1.93 inch height off of the top of the base, which add another about inch and a half to two inches based on the rifle that you're shooting. You're talking a significant height over bore on that, on that mount, but it's allowing you to maintain upright and shoot in a natural, comfortable position without having to really tuck your head in. Now, the other thing that goes with that type of mount is you're probably going to have to have a higher cheek piece. So that is going to bring you into a stock with an adjustable cheek piece like a Magpul PRS um, or like an XLR, the, the stock that I shoot for, for most matches, but definitely matches that involve long range. Um, the, I shoot the XLR. It's I believe it's the Taclite stock, and it has a user adjustable cheek height now you'll see guys shooting the tac mod the coal tac um the luth ar there's there's tons of different stocks but ultimately your stock and your mount are going to determine how you interface with your rifle mm-hmm. and so you'll see guys that are shooting the the old three gun nation style bay match right or the uml style bay match where there's a lot of close targets they're going to shoot something probably with a higher mount it allows them to maintain that upright position and not it doesn't restrict movement as much as really what it does versus if i'm going to arrange with a lot of long, you know a match with a lot of long range i might choose something that's actually a little closer to the bore there's going to be less variation in my distance shooting based off of the height over bore um, it doesn't affect it as much and when i'm down behind that rifle in a prone position i'm not uncomfortable i'm not being pushed up that extra half of an inch yeah by that by that higher mount so generally you'll see 1.45 inches to 1.93 those are kind of the standard heights that you're we're going to see on an ar so it's important that when you're selecting what gear you're using if you only have one setup and cater it towards the majority of the matches that you shoot if you have a couple of different setups which is ideal then have one setup for one type of shooting and another setup for maybe for long range shooting. Again, that's ideal. That that's not everybody can do that. But right, uh, you know, if we're being honest, we usually do see people that that have multiple rifles they're running. Yeah, that that's for sure. Our uh, our buddy Adam <laughs> is one of those people. He's got like a, a golf bag full of rifles for every occasion. But um, you know, one of the uh, the first people that I saw that had that high riser and the uh, high cheek piece was uh, Andy Peterson. <laughs> And uh, th- this was a couple years ago when I took a, a class down at the the TPC in uh, in Utah, and I was I was intrigued by that, and I kind of like the idea of having your head more upright when you're shooting. But now that you mention that, like, yeah, it, that was like right in the heat of the Three Gun Nation Pro Series. Um, so obviously, I think the first. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say. So obviously, his gun was set up for that, but um, you know, us us humans being. Um, you know, soft, squishy things, we can mold ourselves around, uh, you know, non-ideal situations. So putting your head down on a stock for the benefit of having that scope closer to the bore um, seems like a, like a good compromise. Well, and just when you're in the prone position, which yeah. oftentimes, let's think about when we're shooting long-range targets. They might have you on a VTAC barricade. They might have you on a tank trap. It might have you shooting out of a helicopter. 
if you come to shooter source, which <laughs> it's cool. So do it. But if you're shooting prone, a lot of times having that extra height is going to be uncomfortable for you. So yeah. it's, it's for various reasons. The first time I saw someone using that, that height, that 1.93 inch, um, mount was Dan Horner. And again, mm-hmm. that's the first time I saw it. I'm not saying that he's the first person to ever do it. Those mounts were actually developed for use with gas masks and for use with shooting uh, over a PEC-15, which is, you know, an IR designator on right, a yeah. mount, rail-mounted IR designator. Um, and so while while we in the competition world oftentimes like to think, oh, yeah, we did that so that we could shoot three-gun nation bay matches, it actually, <laughs> you know, it was developed for the military law enforcement application of shooting where you can't get your cheek down close enough on the gun. Sure. And um, the other day I was uh, watching uh, Ryan Muckinern on a uh, <laughs> on a Vortex Live where he was talking about scope mount selection, and he recommended that um, you get the scope as close to the bore as possible um, based on you know your body mechanics, your rifle setup, the scope itself, etc. And and you just said that is to prevent variation in in uh in in impact is is that the uh, the idea well a lot of times we're talking about different guns right and so i think sure. generally generally why we would try and get the scope as close to the bore as possible is so that oftentimes i think if you looked at data which isn't available publicly but if you looked at data on what rifles are you know sold most like like you're probably looking at like bolt action rifles you're probably looking at ruger americans remington 700s the what i'm getting at is rifles without an adjustable cheek piece right and since it's so important to have a solid cheek piece when you're shooting with a scope um so that you don't induce parallax and you don't induce scope shadow and all of that fun stuff it is actually important to get your cheek on the stock and what that usually means is mounting the scope as low as possible, taking things like uh, bolt bolt knob clearance and stuff like that into effect. But usually it's not necessarily because we're trying to avoid variations at long range. We can enter that into a ballistic calculator, and that'll just tell us what it is. As long as we have the number, it doesn't matter. But usually it's for the comfort of the shooter, and it's so that we don't induce excess parallax into the equation. Oh, okay. All right, so let's talk about uh, parallax for for a minute here. I, I know the term, but I don't know how I'm supposed to deal with that. So parallax is just going to be a misalignment of one item, one one object to another. Um, and oftentimes, when you're changing uh, your position behind a scope, you'll see parallax induced. And what that kind of explained, it's been explained this a million times. Um, and you'll hear people all over the industry explain parallax like this. But honestly, one of the best ways to explain it is if two people were driving in a truck and the driver is sitting right behind the speedometer and the passenger is over in the passenger seat, the driver looks at the speedometer directly in line with the needle. That's telling you how fast you're going. Mm -hmm. Because you have, I don't know if this is the right term, but you have... The subject, which would be the the um, the dashboard that has the numbers displayed on it, and then you have like an object, which is the needle moving um, as indicating your speed, and then you have your eye. If you move side to side, keeping the position of that needle constant, you can see that it will look like 
you're changing speed. Yeah. But then to explain that even better is to have now the passenger look over at the speedometer. He's going to see it displayed as a different number because of his position behind the speedometer. He's way off axis between the, the needle and the actual speedometer. And so he's going to see a different reading than the driver would. So perfect example, that's driver's, a, going, that, driver's going 55 miles an hour. Passenger looks over and says, why are we only going 50 miles an hour? And driver says, no, we're going 55 miles an hour. That's a really that, good example. And my stepdad uses that all the time so he could speed without getting yelled at by my mom. Oh, totally. It's, <laughs> it's actually a great idea. That's that's very a very simple way to explain it. Now, okay, I like it. Now, now if we look at kind of the the application of that within a rifle scope, let's look at the subject as being the image that's being displayed within the rifle scope. You know, whatever your rifle is pointed at, the target. And then the speedometer is your reticle. And as you move side to side behind that, you can actually see the reticle move on the target. Like if you had the gun in a vice and the gun wasn't moving, but you move behind the gun, you'll see the reticle move. Hmm. And so when you mount the rifle scope, when you zero it, when you get all of that done, you want to make sure that you're, you're consistent with where your, your head is, where your eye is lined up behind the scope. And so to, to ensure that you have that proper, you know, alignment behind the scope, you're also going to take into account eye relief and making sure that you have your stock adjusted. If you have a, a permanently or in a fixed stock, um, a fixed stock versus a, an adjustable stock, mm-hmm. you would want to make sure that when you zero it, you have it set to how you're going to be shooting. So that's so when... when- when you see people shooting at the zero range, they're sitting on a bench. Yeah. The gun's locked in. I will always zero the guns for, you know, how they're intended to be shot. You know, try and get into the natural position that you're going to be in when you're shooting it, whether it be hunting, shooting a match, or just out at the range planking. Right. Um, you'll see most PRS shooters are zero, zeroing their rifles from a, from a prone position. You'll see, um, you know, three-gun competitors really should be checking a few different positions. You should, you should always check how, how it would be mounted off of a barricade. You should check how it would be standing offhand and, and then prone to and try and find that position because most rifle scopes will have a little bit of leeway. They might say four inches of eye relief, but really it might be 3.5 to four and a half depending upon what magnification you're at and depending upon how, you know, what position you're in off axis on the go if you're not perfectly centered behind it you might have if you're perfectly centered behind the optic you might actually have a little bit more eye relief okay so let's let's talk about that real quick so you know we've got an adjustable scope we've got uh, a mount we can move back and forth on or uh, forward and backward on the um the flat top and then we have a scope that we can move forward and backward inside the scope mount right yep what um if i'm starting from a clean slate what do i set up first and <laughs> And and then do do I do I lie down and and get my eye relief? Do I uh, do it from reverse kneel? Do I do it from standing, or do I do all three? And what order do I do them in? So that's a that's a really great question. So the best way that I would I would explain this is most cantilever mounts will allow you to move the mount 
rather than just moving the optic. Mm -hmm. So generally, what I would say, the way that I mount my rifle scopes on an AR-15 that I'm intending to shoot for action shooting is I'll actually mount the scope perfectly level uh, using using the, the leveling tools that I have. I'll mount it centered up so that it, aesthetically it looks right. You know, So the scope isn't slid all the way forward in the mount or all the way backward in the mount. Um, I don't want the turret housing or the eyepiece or the objective touching any part of the mount. Mm-hmm. I want those to, to not be in contact with the scope rings. And so what I'll generally do is I'll actually mount the scope and then I put it on the rifle and I check at each different position. So what I would say is oftentimes standing upright, you know, if you were thinking of yourself shooting a 50 yard plate rack, what would the position I would be in? Or if I was shooting paper at 25 yards, what position am I going to be in if I'm squared up to the target or on the move? Those are going to be the most generally the most forgiving positions because you're upright. You can move your head forward easily. You can move your head backward easily. Yeah. You're not going to be, you're going to be the least constricted that you will be in any shooting position. Now, then what ultimately what you need to do is you need to figure out what position I have the least amount of flexibility with my body based off your body type, your height, um, or lack of height like myself. And, (laughs) um, and ultimately figure out where do I have the least amount of flexibility? What position am I that I'm shooting in? Do I have the least amount of flexibility? I'd probably be prone. Prone is one of them. And some of the awkward positions off of barricades are also, you know, going to be you know they can be funky but generally you'll see that prone is going to be the one where you would really want to make sure that when you set your rifle's eye relief uh, your scope's eye relief based on the position of the mount forward or rear on the receiver because a lot of times you'll have you know plus or minus five slots that you can choose based off of mounts that most people use Um, so make sure that when you're prone and make sure that when you're shooting um, off of these barricades that you can get the right eye relief that you need. Uh, and ultimately, make sure your cheek, your you know, if you have an adjustable cheek uh, piece on your your stock, make sure that, that, that that's adjusted right. Um, if it's like the stock I used, uh, or the, the stock that I use is the XLR, um, that is adjustable with an Allen wrench, so I generally adjust that like before each match just to make sure that it's in position. Um, but it's not just adjustable on the fly. So I would always make sure that if I've got prone positions that I'm shooting, that I have that set for that. Okay. So, um, so start with prone, keep the, uh, keep the, the screws or the nuts loose, check in reverse kneel, maybe yep. throw, throw it on like a desk or a workbench or something like that. And then, uh, verify, uh, offhand cause you can move your head around offhand, uh, to compensate. Yeah. I, I guess the one thing that I will reiterate is that there's not like a perfect position for everything, but if you select a rifle scope, that's got adequate eye relief. Um, there's a lot of them out there. You know, Vortex has several options that have very good eye relief. Um, there's other manufacturers out there too. Uh, you, you really, there's a lot of good options is what I'm getting at, but select something that has forgiving eye relief. So what I mean by that is something that has an eye box, the, you know, the, these, a scope that has, that allows you to move around a little bit behind the scope and not induce scope shadow. Um, because 
we are shooting out of awkward positions a lot. We are shooting on the move a lot. Uh, on a lot of stages, you're not necessarily worried too much about, you know, how how good your cheek rest is if you're shooting paper at 10 yards. Um, but but nonetheless, your eye relief of the scope is actually then really important because you're not taking the appropriate amount of time to get set behind the gun. So right. all of that plays into getting your rifle set up properly so that no matter what type of shooting you're doing, it, it's adequate or, or good. But again, oftentimes it's not going to be perfect for every situation. I get you. I get you. Okay. So I completely set up my, my scope bass backwards last time <laughs> based on what you just told me there. Cause I, I put the, uh, the mount down first and then I left the, um, and I torqued it and then I left the rings loose. Uh, and then I used a feeler gauge to, uh, make sure it was square. And then I moved it back and forth based on where I was at. But I started with kneeling because I could use it in a vice and then I went to prone and then I went to offhand. So next time I will know to do it the correct way. And whatever, you know, ultimately my way isn't the only way to do things. There's people that have been doing this a lot longer than I have that, that their way can be right too. But sure. I think ultimately make sure that in whatever order you do it in, just make sure that you have something that positions the scope properly for your worst, your least uh, desirable position shooting. Mm, I like that. Or least optimal, I guess. Least optimal, yeah. I like yeah. that. Um, now, what do you think about um, people becoming like uh, romantic about how how it's zeroed, how it's uh, um, how the scope is set up and stuff like that? Um, do you recommend like changing zeros based on matches, or do you recommend finding something and then sticking with it? There's something that a uh, romantic is kind of a funny term. Um, because you do, you definitely do run into people that are like, no, 50 slash 200 yard zero is the best. Oh, I'm a, you know, I have, I have a rifle shooting background, so I only zero at a hundred yards. Mm-hmm. I think what you need to be able to do is I love the term rifleman. Like I wish yeah. that more people were riflemen, rifle women. Um, but, but that, you know, really you see a lot of that in the Ipsic rifle shooting. You see people that are just like, they're phenomenal rifle shooters and, um, Lanny Barnes is a phenomenal rifle shooter. Yes, she's incredible. She is. She puts us all to shame at times. Mm-hmm. And so, honing that skill, just like we work on loading our shotgun in the basement, just like we, um, just like we work on dry firing our pistol, just like we work on every other aspect of three gun. I think it's important for people to. Um, focus also then on making sure that they are, that you're a a rifle shooter. And it's, it's something that can really, really pick up. You can really make up a lot of time and and stuff at a, at a big match and, um, build confidence on, on long range matches. Uh, you know, and I think that a lot of people do avoid the matches that are heavy long range because they're afraid of, you know, well, that looks like a fun match, but I don't, you know, I'm not a skilled long range shooter. And it, and it might not be necessarily to the shooter. It might be because you don't have a lot of long range opportunities at your local range. 
uh, it might be because you don't have a local range that has long range opportunities. I, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not always your decision, but if you have it available to you, it is, it is a great, it's a great skill. Now, going back to kind of the question of, is there, you know, like, I guess, how did you phrase the question? Was it like um, people getting romantic about a certain perfect one size fits all? Yeah, exactly. Or, or do you, uh, tailor it to the, uh, to the match you're going to shoot? Well, I think that if we're looking at every other aspect of our game, we, we pretty much tailor it to the match. Mm-hmm. But it's like rifle is this given thing. It's, no, I'm not going to change that because that's what I use. Uh, I only use a 50 slash 200 yard zero. But what if, what if there's a 100 yard plate rack? Like perfect example, 100 yard plate rack. Um, if you use a 50 yard zero or 200 yard zero, you're going to be between an inch and a half and two inches high at 100 yards. Yep. So that takes my margin of error and it allows me to miss the target even when the reticle was on the target if I'm close enough to a top edge. And so then now you have to think about, okay, what distance am I zeroed at for that target? I better hold low on the plate. Adrenaline's pumping, you get through a stage, and you find yourself missing the same plate time and time again, and you're like, oh, shoot. It's because I'm zeroed an inch and a half to two inches off of that target on a six-inch plate. You just lost. Literally, you could lose a third of your actual target presentation. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I think you do have to be able to be flexible and, and be able to tailor it towards the match you're shooting. And I've even, I mean, I, I know I know how scope works internally. I probably have um, a little bit more access to that than the average person, but that's something I'm very fortunate with with my job. Um, and I, I trust the gear that I use. And so when I go to a, a match, oftentimes if, they're, if I am running a 200-yard zero on – you know, on my rifle and there is something like a 100 yard plate rack or, or targets that are smaller. I'll just go into my scope, make the adjustment before the stage and go back in after that stage and make the adjustment again. But I trust the gear that I use, um, based off of past experiences with this gear to know that I don't have to go to the zero range every time I make an adjustment because if I followed, if I followed proper mounting instructions and proper mounting procedures when I did it, and if I go to the range a couple times and test it out just to see if when I make an adjustment, if it actually comes out in the scope, uh, I'll trust my gear enough to know that if I have to make a you know one to two inch adjustment at 100 yards and then after that stage is done, go back and adjust it to where I was before, uh, I trust the gear enough to do that. And so I think that to be an effective, uh, an effective rifle shooter, a rifleman, I think it is important to know your gear a little bit better than the average person does. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree, and I think that's awesome. And one thing that I would I would add to that, Ruben, is that uh, you know a lot of the places that we that we go to shoot, you know, if there are bays, um, they'll have those bays set up for match for for the match, right? For they'll have stages in them, and yep. usually they'll have the least desirable bay for a zero, right? So I would say that you need to know where your rifle. Uh, impacts at 25 yards and 50 yards because a lot of times 25 and 50 are the only uh, zero ranges available and a lot of people that uh, travel via plane you may not may not get your rifle case or, or your gun case 
um, treated with the same care that you would give it. <laughs> yeah, totally. A, a lot of people will will uh, will re-zero when they get to the uh, range. So if you have like a hundred yard zero or two hundred yard zero, know where it impacts at twenty five and fifty, and and have that data available like in your notebook or something like that, so you can um, adjust when you get to the uh, to the range. And the other thing I would say is that a um, a fifty slash two hundred yard zero is a myth. <laughs> and yeah, that totally. is that is based on one load and it is not is not the case with uh the load I shoot which is Nexus 77 grain ammo out of a 13 and a half inch Armalite that is not the case it's more like 5186 or something and that 15 uh yards is is a is an important it can mean a couple of inches for sure yes <laughs> yeah it's an important distinction for, for and that's, me and that's one of those things that you know, we throw it around as a term a lot because that is, it's definitely something that people would refer to. Um, when we're talking with customers, you know, like generally speaking, you're going to be very close at those distances, but no, I agree with you. It's definitely not a, it's not a, a given for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and it's, it's something that I think is like doctrine that's thrown out there. Like I definitely watched it in a, a Travis Haley video and I was like, oh, okay, well this must be the the deal. Um, and it was pretty close when I was shooting limited cause I was shooting like a four MOA red dot, you know, with, uh, with a flare on it and stuff. So real, realistically, how close can you get? But once I started shooting tech ops where you can actually have some zoom on it, I realized that that is not the case whatsoever. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what what this whole discussion has been about is definitely knowing your gear rather than just trusting what the box of ammo says or trusting what somebody at uh, at a range says about zeroing a you know an AR-15 or a whether it be whether it be for hunting com, you know competitive shooting it doesn't really matter like you'll hear a lot of misconceptions about where to zero what distance to zero. Um, you know, this ammo always performs better at long range than this ammo. This is the best thing to do if you're going to shoot long range. This is not the best thing to do. And I think what it boils down to is you have to know your gear. And uh, and, it, and it does equate to time at the range. It it definitely isn't the, the sexy, look how fast I can shoot video for Instagram. Uh, it does actually require a considerable amount of attention. Um, and, and you have to make sure that when you're gathering data for your rifle, whether for three gun hunting, just general plinking, uh, or self-defense, it's, it's only as good as the data you put into it. So, you know, what you get out is only as good as what you put in. Awesome, Ruben. I love that. That's a, it's a great place to, uh, to wrap up here. That's a good final thought. Um, anything else you want to uh, throw out there to make sure the, uh, the folks know before, uh, before we, uh, sign off here? No. Um, I think that, that we covered a lot of good stuff and what it boils down to ultimately Dave is um, there's a, there's a community within three gun that is definitely willing to help out anybody who has questions about zeroing a rifle scope, selecting a rifle scope, um, getting data for, for the loads you're shooting. Um, you can, you can definitely reach out to me, uh, my contact info Dave has. So um, anybody who's listening can, can hit me up directly. I'd be happy to help anybody. Otherwise, you know, a lot of times you can you can really tell who within the the shooting world is is doing their homework because they're usually the guy that's going one for one on the long range targets. So that's probably a good guy to ask too. Absolutely, and you know one of the cool things. So uh, 
this you know plug for for vortex here you guys have like a very good customer care line that i've actually used a couple times and i don't call up into like hey oh, this is dave from the three gun show i just say hey is there someone that you know knows what i need to know and either that person that i get you know has a working knowledge of that or they'll transfer me to someone who does which is cool because you guys have competitive shooters hunters you know long range shooters etc over there so if you have a question, Vortex Customer Care is a good place to start. Hit Ruben up, hit me up, whatever it is. And uh, Ruben, man, I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks at the uh, Vortex Shooter Source. Well, I'm uh, I'm actually headed to the range today to do all of what we just talked about doing so that I'm not a dirty, terrible hypocrite. Um, <laughs> and so so the rest of my uh, afternoon will be, will be spent on the range uh, verifying all of my data and... Um, and ultimately setting up some longer range targets to make sure that I know what's happening on my calculator is actually happening, uh, on the field. So very nice. Anyone that has, uh, any questions, definitely hit me up. I'd be happy to help. If you have questions on, you know, shooting, how this applies to shooting a limited gun. I mean, Adam Maxwell works here at Vortex too. He's a very knowledgeable guy. If you have questions on how it applies to a hunting rifle, Ryan Muckenher is one of the most knowledgeable people I yeah. know. Um, you know, and so I think kind of to play off of what you said, Dave, it, we're happy to be a resource for shooters, hunters, um, really anybody that has questions about how to get this done. And uh, if I don't know, I will direct you to somebody who does. Um, we have guys that, you know, Scott Parks is a very, very uh, high-ranked PRS competitor. Uh, I won't even pretend to, to know how that all works, but he's <laughs> he's a guy that can go and do well at, rain, at, uh, at PRS matches. So you can uh, ask him too. Very cool. And one uh, one last thought before we go here. Uh, Vortex Shooter Source is coming up. It's in Crescent, Texas, which is outside of Fort Worth. There are slots open as we record this. So if you're interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's always on Practice Score. And uh, come out and shoot with us and, and uh, see, uh, see how we match up. Yeah, definitely. Check us out. Um, I believe it's the Instagram is VS3G. Uh, so it's uh, going to be, there's a link to the website on there as well. And Dave will put one in the show notes. Absolutely. Well, Ruben, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate you, uh, taking the time to, uh, teach us a lesson about, uh, l- preparing long range, uh, or preparing for long range shooting in three gun right before you're going to go out and do it yourself. Uh, anytime, Dave, I'm super, super fortunate to, to call you a friend and, uh, to, to have been on the show a couple times now. So thanks again for having me and we'll chat with you soon. All right. Thanks buddy. Hey, before you take off, check out the show notes at 3gunshow.com for links to the two things that we discussed in the podcast. You can also sign up on Patreon as a 3Gun Show supporter or purchase 3Gun Show apparel. This podcast is brought to you by Breda USA, Italian shotguns that are the best in the world. And this is a shotgun tech tip from Team Breda. Hey, this is Dave Hartman from the 3Gun Show, and I've got Josh Tanner here with Team Breda, and we've got a shotgun tech tip for you. Josh, what do you got? All right, today we're going to talk about point of aim, point of impact change on a shotgun when you've run a lot of rounds down down through the gun. So on a long shotgun stage where you've shot a lot of birdshot, the barrel will heat at a different rate than the ribs do, which can start to affect the point of aim, point of impact versus a cold gun. Now, I found that to be much less of an issue with these Breda shotguns, I think due to their barrel manufacturing process, but it's still important to go out and warm your shotgun up really, really hot, shoot a lot of rounds through it, and check and see what that point of aim, point of impact is different with a warm gun versus a cold gun. All right, thanks, Josh. That's your shotgun tech tip from Breda Shotguns.
Check out Breda's B12i three-gun ready inertia-driven shotgun at BredaUSA.com. That's B-R-E-D-A. Quick reminder that if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast content so you will always get the very latest. Thank you so much for downloading, listening, and subscribing to the show. I'm Dave Hartman, and I'll see you on the range. If you are finished, unload show clear.